Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Welcome, everyone, to another session of the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Tane, I think we're going to continue, hopefully, to improve the quality of our audio feed. I have faith that we have found the groove this week, as they say. Shout out to Jim Henneberger and the wonderful folks at the UGA Law School. Yeah, we really miss you guys. Hey, Jim, uh, we hope you're all well, and we hope we're getting back together soon. But Stephen Turner and Turner Up Media has done an amazing job, particularly what, with what we've given him to work with. So do you think this time, instead of fix it in the mix, you think we should just start referring to him as Sir Mix-a-Lot? I like big pods and I cannot lie. Stephen's got it and I can't deny. Sorry, sometimes I rap. Ooh. Wow. <laughs> so back to this episode. After we published our last episode, we started getting all sorts of documents from people rethinking how the judicial system restarts. Yeah, we've been provided documents from federal courts and magistrate courts and some state courts and the AOC and superior courts of different circuits and from a couple of councils, including the Council of Superior Court Judges. And you and I even were on a podcast yesterday with about 4,200 judges and court personnel all around the world. Yeah, we've been privy to these uh different conversations sort of at that level and also between judges of different classes of court locally who are sharing their thoughts and concerns that they feel need to be addressed need to be addressed with some specificity. So we have asked those of you listening to us to feel free to email us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com and tell us what kind of things you are trying to decide and struggling with. We will keep your name or court or circuit private, but we cannot address the issues on our podcast that you care about or ask the Chief Justice to address your issues if we don't know what they are. Yeah, we really thought our phone lines were going to light up with callers sharing their ideas and thoughts. Can we get some of those cool voice changers that mask the voice of the callers so they can remain anonymous? You know, like they're in the witness protection program or something. Wait, this is what I want to talk to you about. Tane, you do realize this is a podcast and not a call-in show, correct? Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess we could really use some input from the people who listen to us, though. And the email thing just doesn't seem to be working. So I, I don't know. I was just trying to innovate. I'll tell you what. We can't have callers, with, even with our fancy new equipment that SJI helped us get. But we can remind people of our email address more often during the podcast. That way, if they're driving down the road, maybe they can remember it. So why don't you – I'll tell you what. Why don't you be in charge of that? Think of innovative ways to help people remember our email address. Got it. You mean like saying goodjudgepod at gmail.com or goodjudgepod at gmail.com or something like that will surely work. Um, Just think, while people are driving down the road and they're headed to work, every time they pass that section of the road that they first heard me say goodjudgepod at gmail.com, they'll probably shed a tear or something. (laughs) So folks, today we are going to share some of these random topics that we, or that I guess that you have shared with us and that you have made us aware of or that we've found out about from other places. You need as much information as possible as you decide how to best plan for your court or circuit to reopen. 
these topics are for you to consider and to talk about with judges and other court personnel within your circuit. Yeah, this is our favorite kind of podcast. It's random thoughts, you know, kind of like that old SNL sketch, Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy. You remember that one, Wade? One of my favorite ones of those was this one. Before you criticize someone, you should walk a mile in their shoes. That way, when you criticize them, you're a mile away and you have their shoes. <laughs> so, Tane, let's get let's get started and let's start, I guess, where with with some reality. We are going to come back. We are going to restart. Absolutely, I'm pretty sure it's going to be in phases. Yeah, I, I think um, the reality is that this judicial emergency is going to end and. Judges in every class of court across the state of Georgia are going to be incredibly busy when that happens. And um, we just got to think about some of these things. I mean, we're not going to immediately return to business as usual on day one. Do you want to do your normal butter up to the chief justice about the vast powers that he has? Well, I mean, I think we all understand the amazing power of the chief justice and, uh, and you know, what a great guy he is also. You know, he grades our papers, right, Wade? <laughs> yeah, I know. But seriously, we have come, and not that you're joking about his power, but but we've talked at it, about it on prior episodes that he can't change the law. Right. And so he's going to try his best. I think there is a time limit to how long the judicial emergency, statewide at least, can last after the governor lifts the general shelter-in-place order or general statewide emergency, how long the judicial emergency can last after that. So it's going to end, but I think that it's going to have a tail, so to speak. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I mean, we're going to have to ease back into some of these things gradually, um, but fairly rapidly gradually, if that makes sense to everyone. And so we're going to have some phases, but I think we're going to move through some of those phases pretty quickly. Um, but we can't just jump in with both feet right out off the bat. You know, Tane, we have a lot of friends in different classes of court who – are going to be just as busy as you and I are. Maybe they don't have as many jury trials as we have, but some of our colleagues are going to really be at least as swamped, if not more so, whenever this judicial emergency ends. So as we start talking about how we're going to manage courtroom space, et cetera, for circuits where you share courtrooms with different classes of court or between different classes of court, there's going to have to be a realization that not everything is going to be all about you, whether you're the magistrate judge or the probate judge or the superior court judge or the state court judge or the juvenile court judge or any other judge, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think that one of the realities is, at least in my circuit, and I'm sure it'll be the same in everyone else's circuit, is we're going to have to coordinate with our colleagues more than we've ever had to do that before. I mean, for example, uh, I have 10 superior court judges in my circuit. We're not going to be able to have, you know, 10 calendar calls on the same day like we might have done in the past or or you know we're going to have to look at how many numbers of people we're calling into each courtroom each day so that we can limit those things because for example um we only have a set number of elevators in the building to get people to and from the seven floors of our building and if you can only have one or maybe two people on the elevator at a time it's going to be tough to get people up and down and back and forth um, just to get them to the courtroom. So we're going to have to coordinate those things pretty carefully. You know, some of our colleagues, Tane, at all of, at all the different levels of or classes of court, they're getting more cranky than usual. So 
Some of them are cranky anyway, but they're getting a little more cranky. And really, I think it's just because of how many questions they have. The, the judges locally are being asked questions by the bar. The, the clients are asking questions of the lawyers. And everybody's getting a little nervous because they don't know what this looks like. They've not done this before. Yeah, and I, I think, uh, you know, you and I even saw that yesterday on the, the uh, webinar that we were on. People were asking questions that indicated that there was a lot of uncertainty. And, you know, one of the things that I recognized in that, though, is that in Georgia, we do seem to be a few steps ahead of some of the other jurisdictions that we were uh, that we were listening to, um, because there were people asking questions that indicated that basically they weren't conducting any hearings right now and that they weren't doing anything on an emergency basis right now. And I was thinking, wow, that that backlog is going to be even bigger for those jurisdictions. I bet they don't listen to the Good Judgment podcast. Well, they should. And they should also contact us at uh, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Yeah, they really should. Wait, let me ask you a question. Do you have any idea about what I know? I know how plugged in you are. Uh, you're kind of a big cheese around here. So uh, whatever. <laughs> so do you have any idea in Georgia what things may look like going forward, at least in terms of, you know, when we may have some changes in this judicial emergency or anything like that? So here's what I understand. And I will and I'll preface this preface this by saying that we have a meeting of the Judicial Council on Monday. Um, I guess that would be the 4th of May. And so if I had to guess, there is going to be a, a, a more firm proposal submitted at that time. But the declaration is going to be extended beyond May 14th. We know that's true. And so what's going to happen, I believe, is that the graduated phases you and I keep referencing and, and sort of guessing about are going to be specifically and with particularity set out in what I think is going to be the final judicial emergency order, but we'll call it the next judicial emergency order. And I think those graduated phases are going to be delineated, I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah, so... Let's recognize one thing, and I think before we go forward and talk about what some of that might look like, this virus has, and this emergency, has really changed our reality in some ways, probably permanently, um, at least in the ways that we're going to be doing certain things. But not every lesson that we've learned has been bad. There are just some things that are going to be different going forward. And Wade, you know how our colleagues tend to respond to things that are different. Yeah, judges are always known for their willingness to readily adopt things that are different than the way they did it. What did you say last time when Gregory Peck, when Gregory Peck was was trying the case and to kill a mockingbird? Yeah, yeah, we we like the you know the white suit and the uh, you know the black tie, and uh, we like our our jury in a little oak wooden box over on one side. We 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 pretty much like that to stay the same. So, you know, we talked about earlier that we've gotten some information from all kind of different courts and different states and different classes of court, even within Georgia and some other sources. So I, we wanted to kick around with you some observations that these courts have made. I think the judicial emergency order statewide is going to be extended. It's going to come back in phases, but there's going to be some local control that's expected to deal with everybody's local reality. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that makes sense because, you know, every area is different. We may have a high incidence of, of the COVID virus or the coronavirus in my area, 
or we may be on an upswing instead of a downswing, whereas, you know, another another area may have many fewer cases than we do. Did you have a chance to see that document from the federal courts that went around last week, I think? Yeah, it was a it was a good document. I, I the at least it was a great framework I think for considering how you might phase in a return to court. And we've provided um, access to that document on our website at goodjudgepod.com. So shockingly, it was a federal document that was actually fairly plain and somewhat easy to decipher. The federal courts, as you might imagine, they're they're dealing with policy from courts in New York and courts in North Dakota. They, they are dealing with district courts and, and appellate courts and magistrate courts. And so they are they had to build in some flexibility. So they discussed reopening in four different phases. They established a criteria that would tell you how you would move from one phase to the next. And just like you were talking about just a moment ago, how people have different levels of the virus and different levels of hospital care and things like that, they left it to the court to decide which phase they plugged in at or started at. And then they gave criteria for how they would move forward or back, depending on how things develop in the, in, in their, their, they use the word community. And I'm putting that in air quotes. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. It, it made sense to me because it gives each area a baseline for determining where they are in you know, in in the process of reopening until they would get back to a hundred percent, you know, functionality, whatever that looks like for that particular court. And um, I, and I thought that was really smart because we're going, we can't statewide, we can't all go at the same pace necessarily. And, and I don't know how the law is going to allow, you know, us to, to give the flexibility to the different localities. But I, I think that's what's probably going to have to happen going forward. The other neat thing I thought about the way that the feds had looked at it was, um, they said, okay, as you progress through these phases, if you have a setback or if you have a rise in cases or you have some things that happen, it also had a, a criteria for how you would move backwards, you know, how you would go back to phase two from phase three. And again, I thought that was smart because we don't know what's going to happen going forward as we get into the, you know, later months of this year and, and into next year. So anyway, I think all of those were, were good things to think about. And that's certainly something great to look at at goodjudgepod.com. <laughs> So they were talking about its screening and I, and I, and this struck me the other day when we were listening to the federal, I mean, to the, uh, the webinar, the webinar. Yeah. They had a doctor on that spoke about as plain as anybody I've ever heard in my whole life. Yeah. And he said, look, when you're screening people, don't ask them if they feel good. Don't ask them if they've not felt good because you're going to get all kinds of stuff, including stuff you don't want to know about. That's right. So they, he, he said, basically, Ask people, do you have a fever? And then maybe you can do the forehead test thing. Two, have you had the virus? Three, has anybody lived in your house that has the virus? And kind of stop. Because if you start going, where did you travel and all of that stuff, my God, I mean, we're going to be like frisking people at the front door of the courthouse. And the other question he suggested too was, have you been coughing? And I thought, you know, that's a question everyone can answer. Uh, have you been coughing? Okay, yeah. 
Um, so yeah, I, I thought it was a very simple screening procedure and, you know, there were some people, you and I were both watching the comments, which I always love to do. There were some people losing their minds over the concept of screening folks as they come in the courthouse. And I was thinking, do you not have a metal detector at your door? Cause you're screening people that way too. And they were just losing, they were like, what about the, the p- privacy, uh, you know, aspects of this and all that. And I was thinking, gosh, you're HIPAA. Yeah. HIPAA. And I was like, gosh, you're overthinking this. I mean, all you're talking about is a temporal scanner for, for temperature and asking three scanning qu- or screening questions before they come in the door. So I, I don't know, people, people tend to look for the negative and everything. I didn't see a problem with this. One of the things that they did suggest though, is if you're going to put some kind of screening process in place, that if you, if you have the ability to have a healthcare person do the screening, that that would be great. Maybe if you've got a local, uh, you know, board of health or something like that, that could have people stationed at the entrance to ask those questions or something like that. And they also made a good point in these federal documents which talks about screening when they said, all right, you need to screen people coming into the facility. You need to screen potential jurors, but you also need to screen employees at some point. I mean, at some point, you may or may not know, you think you know what's going on in the lives of your fellow employees, but candidly, I don't know what's going on in the solicitor's office staff or the uh, magistrate court clerk's office. And so I thought that was a pretty good idea that you need to figure out some way to also at least perform some sort of screen on your employees as well as the others. Yeah, we've talked about in my local jurisdiction, one of the things that if we can make it happen, we would like to do is that we would actually like to not screen, but actually test at the outset all of the people who have been working through the time of this emergency. In other words, people who haven't been completely sheltered in place during this period of time, but people who've been working off and on at the courthouse to see if we could get a baseline and test everybody before we start moving into the next phase and bringing people back to work. We don't know if all that test is going to be available. We don't know how much funding is going to be available for that. We're, you know, we're exploring that right now, but we're talking with our local emergency management um, person to see if they can, you know, after they screen their first responders and people like that, if we could be sort of next in line to get courthouse personnel tested um, before we try to move into the next phase of all of this. I don't know if it's going to be possible. I don't know what it's going to cost, but that's something that we're looking into and that people might be thinking about as well. You know, the federal guidelines also talked about judges looking at cleaning procedures. And I know that there have been some general conversations about that, but I don't know really what standards need to be applied what a, what constitutes a deep cleaning as opposed to a standard cleaning. Yeah. And I know some of our Georgia courts have reached out to their local health departments and basically conducted a tour of their building, their courthouse, with those local experts that are potentially available to help you and that those people can find blind spots. And I'm again, I'm using air quotes, where the judges may not have considered a potential problem in the building. Yeah, I, I, it is beyond my uh, ability to uh, believe that I have thought of all of the places that probably need to be cleaned or that, you know, the places where we might need to put hand sanitizer or, you know, all of those kinds of things. Or, as I said, one of the things that just occurred to us the other day that we're going to have to work around is elevators in our building. I mean, you know, they're in use continuously uh, all day, every day. And if we're going to social distance, that basically means one person at a time in the elevators. And so we're going to have to figure that out. And there are people that just can't. I mean, you can talk about using the stairway all you want to, but there are people who can't. And so 
anyway, um, going back one more time, and I'll finish up with this whole federal thing, but they were talking about when you're looking at which phase you should sort of consider yourself in, you look at your total population of whatever you call your community, the population density, how much of your population or how many, I guess, are over the age of 60, the available ICU beds in the community, whether your local hospitals have been over, overly stressed, and how many confirmed cases of COVID-19 there are in that community. And they said, use that to decide where you plug in into the four phases. And they, and they literally said phase one, two, three, four. It wasn't like, you know, they had cool names for them or anything. Right. But they gave directions to for employees, people in court operations, people in human resources, and facility actions at each one of those levels, like what employees should need, need to do, what court operations need to look like, how you should deal with your, with your personnel, and what you should do, facility actions. They talked about cleaning and screening and what kind of spaces would be available to be used under phase one versus phase four. And they called all that gating. Were you able to look at that? Yeah, their gating procedures were basically what are we going to do to move from, you know, phase one to phase two, phase two to phase three and back again. Like I said, one of the important things there was, look, we may have to take a step back at some point in time. What's the gating procedure for moving back? And they said there should be like a specific review on a specific interval every and they said either 14 days or 30 days, depending on where you are in that continuum to reevaluate, just like you said, whether to remain in the current phase, step back a phase or step forward to the next phase. So they said that you need to look at, has your, has your facility been exposed? That's going to change the analysis. And then that you should also look at how many community cases you have. And over the last most recent 14-day period, is your community moving up or down? And then look at whether shelter-in-place orders or similar restrictions on outside activity, outside the courthouse, whether they have been relaxed or removed or enhanced, whichever way it may be by the local authorities that are not court related. So these materials were pretty straightforward and, and helped us at least inform us that we're on the right path, I think, with the conversations we're having locally. Where are those materials available, Wade? Um, they're, they're going to be on our website. The website is goodjudgepod.com. You want to tell them what the email is? Yeah, it's uh, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. That's goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You know, I think, um, we're going to need a jingle. Um, <laughs> Tane, we, you and I have talked off air a lot about mass calendar calls. You want to give them your quote or you want me to read it? Yeah, I have some thoughts about that, Wade. I like to refer to mass calendar calls as a, quote, gross waste of people's time in general, end quote. Yeah, I mean, it is the way we've always done it, though. Yeah, I was going to ask, Wade, why is it that we do uh, our calendar calls that way? Because that's the way we've always done it. That's right. Our predecessors did it that way. You know, we recognize that there is some reality to this too, and not not to be flippant about it, but there are our cases don't usually move forward unless there's an event that is scheduled to make it move forward. Yeah, that's really true. We we incentivize people by letting them know that by a date certain, um, you're going to have to have decided whether to fish or cut bait. And that's the way we've always moved things forward. And and really in most cases, whether it's civil or criminal, at the end of that was always the overarching threat of a civil jury trial or a criminal jury trial, and that was our incentive for moving things forward. But that's not always going to be the case going forward, I don't think. You know, you're, you're right, and, and we talk about our calendar calls, but if you think about classes of court that 
where calendar calls are set by traffic tickets, you know, basically an officer puts a tra- a date on the ticket. They that's done to save the local courts the requirement that they send arraignment notices on all cases, but the court's not really overseeing that. The court doesn't have any idea in any given month that they're going to get 30 tickets or 300. That's right. And that's going to take a lot of coordination between the courts and their local law enforcement to reach out and say, hey, we may need to do this a different way from now on. We may not be able to have a mass court date or we may need to be more specific on the ticket. You know, your court date is not just going to be March the 30th. Uh, it's going to be March the 30th at 9 a.m. or at 9.15 or at, you know, 9.30 um, so that we can coordinate those things in a way that don't bring huge crowds of people into the courthouse at the same time. You know, I know those classes of court don't want to make this too complicated for officers, but but consider this. Consider asking your day shift officers to put a morning court time on the whatever your dates are, the first and third Wednesday of every month or whatever. Then ask night shift to use the afternoon court times. And then maybe troopers use a wholly different day and the city officers or whatever other agencies use a whole different day only because you need to make this relatively simple for the people putting the court dates on the citations. But at the same time, it just can't be the way it was. We can't cram 100 traffic defendants into a courtroom. And I don't know that we're ever going to be able to return there, frankly. Certainly not for the foreseeable future. I think the key watchword for all of this is going to be coordination and, and also communication, coordination and communication between agencies, uh, between you and your colleagues. I think those are things that going forward, we're just going to have to do a better job of where we've as judges been able to act pretty much independently of one another. We are going to have to coordinate things in the future. And you know that what we've just talked about may help you deal with traffic tickets that are written in the future, but you got to think also about the existing cases for all these calendars that have been missed or are going to be missed, depending on what the chief justice does with a judicial emergency order. That's right. You know, my wife, is a is the probate judge for Columbia County. I don't know if you knew that or my not. My favorite Judge Padgett. Yeah. And mine too. And uh, they have already missed three monthly traffic arraignment dates just through May 14th. So they're going to have to send notices to all those defendants with new court dates. But they can't simply say, okay, 75 people were supposed to be here in March. We're going to bring them in in June 1st. You can't do that. It's the same problem. It's the 75 people problem. I heard from all those people that that meant that their tickets were dismissed. All those people told me that. Yeah, there, there are some who believe that. You can <laughs> believe that too. Um, but so the people from March are going to collide with the people who are getting tickets where they're just in processing and they've got a June court date. So her office is basically going to have to divide one event the March arraignment date into three or four events to, to keep with social distancing and any directives that may be received from the chief justice. So they're going to have to have already have nine or 12 events that they normally would not have from June to July or whatever. And they're going to have to break up the Junes and Julys that way too. You know, you, we talked last time about uh, just a, an offhand comment that the chief justice made that one of the ways they were looking at using 
the courtroom capacities. You remember what we were talking about when yeah. we talked about using the percentage of capa- of like fire marshal capacity? Right, one-fifth or one-fourth of the uh, existing capacity. So, again, if you look at your room and if your fire marshal capacity is 50 and you get a one-fifth order, well, you can't put but 10 people in there, and that's going to be just the courtroom personnel probably. That's exactly right. And, and I think, you know, again, you're going to have to consider – not only, all right, if we've got 10 people in the courtroom and maybe we've called in another 10 to come in right after them, where are those people going to wait? You know, again, you've got to so- figure out a way to social distance them. If they're waiting in the hallway or if they're waiting somewhere, you're going to have to figure out a way to either, you know, put six foot squares on the floor and tell one person to stand in each one of those six foot squares or, you know, something like that so that you can maintain those social distances and try to achieve some level of efficiency. But as we've said, you know, it just means that A, things are going to be different than they've ever been, and B, they're going to take a lot more thought uh, than we've ever probably given them before about how we're going to do them. And, you know, there are some people who, quite frankly, are just losing their minds over that idea. And the reality of it is you just need to get past that. You know, this is this is kind of our therapy session for you. You just need to get beyond that and then accept the reality of where we are and then be kind of ingenious. Put your heads together collectively and figure out how to make this work. Sounds like we need some more of that Jack Handy music right here. Yeah, man, I'd like the to soothing like piano tone. Get another deep thought in there if we could. <laughs> anyway, Wade, um so, but you know, you talked, Tane, you talked about the fear of going to a jury trial being the prior motivating factor. Right. So, so what are we going to use now? If that's not going to be a realistic, and I don't hate, I hate to use the word threat, but the, I guess time limit. Incentive. What, what are we going to have to do it's now? It's an incentive. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I, what, where you, what can we use as incentives now? Well, one of the things that we've talked about in my jurisdiction about that is, uh, you know, maybe it is, and we're going to have to try some things and see how they work, but maybe it is that, you know, if you get a, an announcement of, uh, of ready for trial, let's, let's say we've gone all the way to the point where we're doing a, an email, uh, calendar call, you know, and having people report, and you've got a certain number of those cases that have said they're ready for trial and they're on a two hour call or whatever your, your general call is for those cases. Um, Perhaps what we then do is we call them all in for a virtual fry hearing, (laughs) you know, a a hearing to put on the record what offer has been made and whether that's been accepted or rejected. Because that was always one of the things that I used um, when people would uh, say that they were ready to go to trial. I think we're required to do some form of that to make sure that if offers have been made, that they've been conveyed to the defendant and the defendant has accepted or rejected them. Um, uh, you know, maybe we do something like that uh, for each case that has announced ready for trial to see if, in fact, some of those offers may be accepted now or, you know, if, if maybe there's a different offer that's being put on the table. You know, we've had a lot of cooperation during the judicial emergency between prosecutors and people who defend cases. And we've talked a lot today about criminal. We are going to talk about some civil and domestic here in a few minutes. But there's going to have to be some other kind of carrot or stick. I mean, people are going to have to, instead of posturing about, well, if I'm going to stand my ground that this is going to be the offer and I know I don't have a witness, we're going to have to be realists across the entire, I guess, judicial system 
about what we have and, and we have limited time and we need to pay attention and give, I guess, priority to cases that need to be tried versus those cases that could be tried. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And and sort of in the way that we've always done, because, um, you know, jury trial time has always been one of those precious resources. It's going to be even more precious now. Um, and so I, I agree with what you said. I want to go back to what you said. We've seen a great deal of cooperation between the DA's office and the defense bar to try to expedite something that before, you know, there was sort of an obligatory dance that everybody did before uh, a plea was reached where, you know, you threw out a high offer, the other side threw out a high offer and everybody kind of worked their way toward the middle. I think we've been able to shorten that process some. I don't know if that will continue in the future. I hope that it will because it's always been a somewhat unnecessary step to me. I think everybody feels like they're doing their, you know, doing their job, doing their best by, by engaging in that. But I think we could expedite things a little bit more. Um, let's talk about some practical ways that, uh, that, that some jurisdictions, I can talk about my jurisdiction are, are using right now to try to expedite the res- resolution of cases. And, and if that's okay, we'll, we'll go forward and talk a little bit about that. Um, we're um, in Cobb. One of the first things that we're doing right now is, for example, let's say I have a an arraignment calendar um, that was scheduled last month, and we do have we did have that obviously, um, and we'd have you know maybe thirty to fifty people who would be on that arraignment calendar, depending on what the the previous grand jury was able to accomplish. What our prosecutors and our um, circuit defender have been able to do, and I just I commend them for this, is the circuit defender has actually taken the list of people who do not have counsel, anybody who hasn't had an appearance uh, of counsel on, on the record, and they actually have proactively reached out to those people who are unrepresented in, in a way that they would have done in the courtroom on the day of uh, you know, of our arraignment calendar, but instead they've called those people and said, hey, look, we're here. You seem to meet some of the criteria. I mean, they've been a little loose about it, I think, but they say you seem to meet some of the criteria for having a circuit defender represent you at th- at least right now. If you would like for us to represent you for the purposes of this arraignment calendar, and then we'll you know interview you further and see if we can go forward and represent you through, through the case. Um, but, but we'll represent you and you know, a lot of those people, a high percentage of those people said, yeah, of course, I'd, you know, I'd like for somebody to represent me and I don't have to go out and try to search for a lawyer or figure out this process right now or whatever. And so the circuit defender has just appointed someone to represent them. What that has allowed us to do is get a lot of waivers of arraignment um, at the outset so that we can then move the case to the next step in our process. So our circuit defender has been super proactive in in making that work. What that also allows them to do then is to talk to the district attorney's office on behalf of that defendant and see if it's a case that's eligible for some kind of early resolution. You know, it might be something that if it's a standard drug case, they know what the offer is going to be, which is going to be probably either two or three years of probation and some other conditions that we put on drug cases. And we might be able to go ahead and get that case resolved because in my jurisdiction, we're moving to a phase right now where we're trying to do some non-jail resolutions of cases. We're trying to move into the phase where 
like I just described, if it's a typical drug case, we're going ahead and putting people on some probation with the conditions that we would do, which helps the defendant because it's not delaying the inevitable for them um, and it's moving the case along. So those are some things we're doing right now. You know, we're starting to do some of that too in Augusta, that we're starting to look at how we can address cases that are not simply jail cases. Now, I think, and and we have had a long conversation about, at least on my team, that you can proceed with some of this by video. I mean, the if the lawyers are uncomfortable with being there, that reduces my numbers in the courtroom and we can do a lot of this by video, but let me tell you about some some reactions to video. <laughs> you remember, Tane, last last time we talked about the, I guess, committee we're both on now, about looking at how we might be able to conduct Vordire via video. And I just casually mentioned that to my lead prosecutor and lead public defender. Wow. <laughs> Did I get a negative reaction? Yeah, I got the reactions I got to a few people I read that I, you know, just casually mentioned it to was explosive, I think was the reaction to it. And it, it wasn't positively explosive. And, you know, they, they've immediately started throwing out all these, oh, well, what about blah, 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 what about blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, look, we've thought about those things. We've figured out some ways that, uh, that we might get around that. And there was a bit of that on the, on the, uh, webinar that you and I were on yesterday there, you know, there was an immediate series of questions saying, you know, what about people who don't have access to video or don't have a cell phone or whatever? And I'm like, do you think nobody's thought about that? I mean, you're not like the smartest guy in the room. We've all thought of some of those things and there are workarounds for a lot of the problems that might happen. But yeah, I think the immediate reaction to that was, Oh, you can't do that. You can't have, you know, video voir dire. And I was like, I think we can. And in fact, we learned yesterday that it looks like the state of Texas is forging ahead with trying to do some, pretty significant video trial, uh, you know, experimentation uh, as soon as maybe next month. You know, some of that's going to require statutory changes in Georgia. Some of it's going to require rule changes. I know that Uniform Superior Court Rule 9.2, which is echoed in a lot of the other classes of court, but I know it's, it's on the table in the legislature because it made it through crossover day from the Senate to the House. And it had gotten approval from the Senate. So hopefully that would be a venue or an avenue for people to go ahead and address that. Now, Tane, if people had some really good ideas or questions even about video voir dire, how would they share that with us so we can talk about it on the podcast? Well, Wade, the easiest way for them to get in touch with us is at our email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. That's right. We're doing this. You're doing a good job. You're Thank doing your, you. your job very well. Thank you. I'm trying to continue to do that. No shows, no show jurors, no show defendants. Um, we're not issuing any bench warrants. I'm assuming y'all are not either. Yeah, right now. Um, we're not, I, you know, I, it, these are just weird times and I think we have to give a measure of grace to people. Uh, some may be afraid to show up. Some may have not have the ability to show up. You know, people may not be sheltering at their regular address where they're getting notices of things. I mean, you know, it's just a strange time. 
you know, we once upon a time, we had some amnesty days for different things like amnesty day for bench warrants, amnesty day for not paying fines, things like that. Could you talk to we the IRS? We may have to seriously consider that. that. Could, you, could you talk to the IRS about maybe that, <laughs> please? You know, we may have to think about that here. Yeah. That, that we have some people who don't show and maybe when we come to the next phase or a little bit, maybe not right now, but coming up, maybe we have an amnesty day for people who failed to appear for things. And if they... If we have a valid address and potentially counsel or whatever, maybe we look at sort of recalling some bench warrants because having unloaded the jail, the jail's not out of the woods yet. Our local jails are about a, a long way from being out of the woods on this. Sure. Um, let's talk about probation violations. You know, we told them on, on a regular basis when people quit reporting or whatever, but we have some the ability already to convert fines if people have, have failed to pay fines to community service. And there was a request at one point that we take all technical violations and have them released on bond or whatever and have them be walk-ins with like real NASA's attached to them. Are y'all doing that? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Wade. And, you know, hopefully none of these defendants have yet caught on to the beauty of uh, good judge pod uh, the good judgment podcast, but, um, I'm just going to reveal a secret to you here. I have a stack of, uh, requests for warrants on my desk for technical violations for probation that I just can't issue right now. You know, I'm not going to ask those folks, and I don't think they would be anyway, but I'm not going to ask for those people to be picked up and put in jail for things like, you know, failing to report at a certain time or failing to um, pay their fines and fees and things like that. Not that those aren't, you know, serious violations or things that I take seriously, but the reality of it is right now, the jail doesn't need those people. And, you know, I can catch up with them when we're able to make that work in the future. And so some of those are just going to sit on my desk for a little while and I'm going to hold them and I'll issue those bench warrants when I think it's safe to do. So I'll tell you another one too. Um, If somebody wants me to have someone picked up on a misdemeanor that occurred way back in September or October and they just picked it up in March, um, that person had already been out for five months, you know, and so they're probably not going to get picked up for a little while either. And that one may sit on my desk for a little while too. So let's move now to some of our friends on civil and domestic hearings. I'm sure they're going to be interested to how this is going to proceed thus far, Tane. And we talked about this in the prior episode. We have had a lot of reluctance from lawyers, particularly lawyers to proceed by video. It's just not the way we've done it, and they just had a a very adverse reaction to being able to proceed by video. What about you? Well, yeah, and I think one of the reasons for that, Wade, wasn't because they didn't think they could do it by video. I think that it was that they, A, couldn't figure out the mechanics of how it would work, and B, they were afraid that on their end – they would screw up the video, if you understand what I'm saying. I think they they didn't want to appear, especially if their clients were going to be present, which in some cases they were. They didn't want to appear. They didn't know what they were doing. And I don't know what y'all have done, but we've tried to put out some tutorials or whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, some some instructions for them on, hey, this is how 
a, a WebEx hearing is going to go and we're going to host it and we're essentially going to be, you know, leading you through it. You just have to be sure and click on the right link at the right time. And I think some lawyers were concerned that their clients might have been exposed to COVID and they didn't want to bring them in their office. And one of the things we've tried to make clear is, number one, if the client has the ability and the lawyer wants to do it, they could join from their house, their office, their whatever, the the client. But number two, even if they came in the office, they could be on another device in the conference room or whatever you want to call it. And the lawyer could be in their office so they wouldn't have to sit next to each other and share one webcam. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we've even explained to them that we have the ability to put them in a breakout room or whatever the particular, you know, uh, web vehicle that you're using calls it. But we have the ability to essentially wall them off from us temporarily, let them discuss things then bring them back into the video that everybody else is a part of. And that's made some people more at ease. Well, and we are going to have to use video because even if once we get capable of moving somebody, we, we can only do so many videos, you know, we, I mean, sure. excuse me, we can only use, we can only, we, we've got to share the courtrooms. We can only have so many people in the courtroom. Right. So we're going to have to keep doing this and we might even have some night and weekend court or night and weekend video conferences, which are going to be a hassle for the judge. But at, at the same time, I don't know that we have a lot of choices. You know, did you, I don't know if you saw it, but our colleagues in magistrate court have done a lot of good work because I did not, I had no idea that the CARES Act, which I think was one of the acts that came out of the coronavirus pandemic, that it actually put a moratorium on evictions, residential evictions. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I didn't know that. And so they have created some documents that all classes of court can use to do that. So while we've talked a lot about criminal matters and other matters, um, our, our civil caseload and our domestic caseload is going to also be changed because of the lack of courtroom space and time that we're going to have to, you know, double up. We're going to have to work late and early and things like that. So, Tane, before we leave, we one more thing. Justice Blackwell who has been working with all the different classes of court, and I think some of the other justices on the Supreme Court have been sort of assigned tasks by the Chief Justice to test and, 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 and really work through some of the sub-issues associated with this judicial emergency. And he's really worked a lot with the tolling part of that because there were people who were very concerned about how our speedy trial demand is going to work. Right. Um, the, the authority to amend judgments that may have, you, know, you have to do it within the same term of court. Does that mean it passed when the defendant can seek to withdraw their guilty plea, like we talked about with Collier? And so when we expect that when this judicial emergency order comes out, one of the things it's going to do is specify that any term of court that was interrupted will not count in the final analysis for things that have deadlines, et cetera. Now, this is going to be a little bit like that train leaving the, the, the station running 28 <laughs> miles an hour thing we did last time. That question I still have but nightmares about. Yeah, I know. So, folks, if you will bear with me just a minute, let me work through some of this. The original declaration of a judicial emergency was effective on March 14th, and it will extend, at least for now, until May 14th. And for the purposes of the rest of this conversation, let's just use May 14th as the example. The 
Terms of court for each circuit can be found at OCGA 15-6-3. They're listed per circuit, but then every county within the circuit has a specific terms of court. Nobody has less than two. Some have four. Some have six. And every term of court for every circuit begins something like the first Monday in whatever month or the third Monday in whatever month or the first day of the month or something like that. So for our example, let's use an imaginary circuit where they have terms that begin on the first day of January, March, May, July, September, and November. Six circuit. Because that's going to be one of the circuits that gets affected the most by this. Right. So just for your information, March the 14th was the second Saturday of March. May 14th would be the second Thursday in May. So this term of court thing is probably, like we said, going to affect counties with six, with six terms, probably more so than those with two. But May four, but let's just assume a May 14th resumption, although that's unlikely. Let's just use it. That's going to result in an interruption of an, in our imaginary circuit of the March and May terms. We're at least partially interrupted. Now, you're going to get a different result, for example, in Cobb County, where you are, or, or Richmond County, where I am. Cobb's terms start on the second Monday of those six months. They do. Richmond's terms begin on the third Monday. Yeah, I know. Like, you don't know what that is. <laughs> but so, so, for example, the start day would have interrupted a term for you, but not for me. Right. But a May 14th resumption will be in a term that was already interrupted for you, but not for me. So there were, there are going to be some slight variations per circuit. I know this feels like an SAT question, but anyway, speedy trial demands, you know, there are two kinds, Tane, right? Uh, yeah, there's uh 17.7.170, which are the non-capital cases and 17-7-171, which are the capital cases. So in non-capital cases, the state's going to have to try the defendant within the term that the demand was filed or the next term. In capital cases, the defendant must be tried within the term in which the demand is filed or the next three terms. If you, I know the statute says something about two. It says no less than two. Look at these two cases, Morrow, M-O-R-R-O-W versus the state, and Walker versus the state. They explain that it's Three terms. And, and let so me, I, expect I, that, I don't want to insult anybody, but let's all remember capital doesn't mean death penalty or it doesn't always mean death penalty. So don't forget that there are some cases that are non-death penalty cases that are still considered to be capital cases. You all know that, I'm sure, but I just want to throw that out there. boy. I expect that the next judicial or hopefully the final judicial emergency order will specify that any term of court that was interrupted will not count for the purposes of speedy trial demands. Therefore, Whenever jury trials are authorized, whatever term you're in, that case, that defendant would have to be tried within the number of terms that were remaining when jury trials become available again. Now, the authority to amend, et cetera, court orders usually has to be the same term of court in which the order was initially entered. That's the HIP case, H-I-P-P versus state, versus state 293 Georgia 415. If an order was entered on March 5th, the court would normally have the power to amend or correct or revoke that through the end of the July term in our hypothetical circuit because of the judicial emergency. Again, I'm going to expect the order is going to say any term that was interrupted does not count. So the March and May terms would not count in our hypothetical circuit. 
So the court could amend its order through uh, of March 5th through the end of the July term. Generally, any deadline or time limit that is measured in reference by days, in other words, or even years, because that's just a bunch of days, any, dur- anything that came due during the judicial emergency would not account. So if a party had 10 days remaining to file an answer on March 14th, they are going to have 10 days to file that answer once the judicial emergency is lifted. Let me say one thing too, Wade, just as a, as a tip. One of the things my circuit's been doing, and I know a lot of other circuits are doing, is that we have been marking essentially every order or anything else that we signed during this time with a little symbol, a CV, that just indicated that it was signed during the judicial emergency. One of the things that I'm going to be recommending to my colleagues is that once we move into these different phases, we slightly change that symbol to say CV1 or CV2 so that we know that it was something, you know, six months from now or a year from now that we signed during one of these interim phases as we're moving back into the regular phases. Because at the very least, I think indicating that it's something that was signed during the COVID judicial emergency is important. So if your circuit's not doing that, that's something you might want to consider going forward. So we know we're getting late. We know we've been talking a long time. So we're going to be even more random with our random thoughts here. Um, PPE. We know it's hard to get. We know we don't want to impede anything that a hospital may need. We're not trying to, to endanger their ability to get it first. But I know my understanding is that the AOC, the administrative office of the courts with Ms. Clanton as its fearless leader, she, they are going to have some access potentially to some PPE sources that all the different councils of all the different classes of court will will know about. So instead of everybody calling Cynthia and, and, and trying to get her on the phone from all the different courts, it might be best to just work through your council to do that. The other thing you might look at, as I said earlier, is we're working with our local emergency management coordinator um, to see if they could potentially secure us some PPE after the first responders get what they need. Communication, you've talked about that being key. If you're just taping notices to the window of the courthouse, A, it's probably tacky. B, it's a little late. I mean, somebody's already there to be able to see it. Develop a strategy to communicate outside the building, whether that be on the internet, whether that be the media, presentation to the bar organizations. You could do a, a Zoom meeting with the local bar association to talk about some particular things. You might deal with civic groups the same way. Just help get the word out because right now people are filled with misinformation. Communicate the level of detail that you need to judge to address the issue. For example, nobody, when we declared a judicial emergency, the first thing that crossed people's minds was not how is this going to impact child visitation. But it did very quickly, obviously, become a very serious issue. And the governor, thankfully, helped us by issuing issuing a clarification. We can probably do the same thing with the next or last judicial emergency order as well. Yeah, there was a, a, a state, and I forget which it was, a local a jurisdiction that was on that webinar we talked about yesterday, who said they had been having a weekly kind of town hall meeting with the with the bar just to discuss various topics and allow people to ask questions. And, you know, that might not be possible in your 
local jurisdiction, but there are ways to continue to communicate. We've been very successful with our local bar sending updated newsletters because they have access uh, via the internet to a, a mailing list for just about everyone in the entire Cobb bar uh, to communicate things which are getting pushed out to the lawyers. And it's really been helpful. They've been great about that. So we talked a little bit about having jury selection occur in the jury assembly room, Tane, and those conversations have been going on, some room like a jury assembly room in the courthouse. Think about this, folks. Again, this can't change the law. So when you have a defendant in custody who is going to participate in jury selection in the jury room, think about how that's going to work mechanically. In, in, in coordination with security personnel, are you going to, are y'all all going to be in the room first, then the jurors come in? Is it going to be possible to walk the defendant in with the jurors already, already sort of checked in and waiting on you? Um, are you going to put a huge security contingent around this one guy, which sort of sends the message? He's really dangerous. <laughs> Just think about it, the, the mechanics of how you're going to do it. Um, we've talked about sort of what we expect um, I think we'll know a lot more middle of next week after the the Judicial Council meets on, mon on Monday. But you know, Tane, we started this with Sir Mix-a-Lot. As we and always should. If people don't know, <laughs> and if people don't know, we are both sort of kind of music people, usually different genres, but music people. And one of your favorite artists is, is Taylor Swift. She is. And she has a pretty famous line that, that sort of describes some of our colleagues and some of our lawyers. Yeah, I think— You remember? Yeah, I think some of the best philosophy, because she is quite a philosopher, Taylor Swift. And so I like to read a lot of her really deep writings and things. And one of the, one of the greatest uh, pieces of philosophy she's ever given us is that, you know, haters going to hate. And uh, we just need to— accept that and that's i think that's what taylor was trying to tell us is you know haters gonna hate and we just have to keep doing what we're doing because let's be honest some of our colleagues are going to be the biggest haters uh, as we go forward with some of this and you know we just have to deal with them where we find them and uh so so we'll do that and you guys just keep plugging along and you know if you would like to share some of your good ideas with us we would really, really appreciate it if you would contact us at a, a little a little Gmail account that we've set up that we like to call goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You know, after I left that left last episode, I was thinking from a, a pretty funny movie from years ago. There's somebody says, you don't call me no more. I was kind of thinking, you don't email me no more. <laughs> so hopefully uh, people will email us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com and give us some things that we can work on that address those things that, that, that you want to have heard. So, folks, thanks for listening. This is Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And don't forget, follow the CDC guidelines and wash your hands after podcasting. Take care, everybody. Thank you, folks, for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law and specifically Jim Henneberger uh, for their technical assistance and providing the studio for us. Thanks, as always, to Stephen Turner and Turner Up Media, who does his best to get as much of our stupidity as he can. But he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to CSCJ, the Council of Superior Court Judges, for allowing us to handle in 
NJO and their support in this project. Folks, these are our own opinions. They represent the opinions of Wade Padgett and Tane Kale and do not reflect the opinions of the Council Superior Court judges, UGA College of Law, ICJE, or really anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at our website at goodjudgepod.com or you can contact us on email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Folks, please rate and review our podcast on whatever listening app you may be using. It'll go a long way to help others find the podcast. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this one. Anything else you feel like we need to say? No, that's all, Wade. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.